From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Mike Biggs. Today on the program, On a Mission in San Francisco's Mission District. We feature an interview with the People's Mayor, Roberto Hernandez. Also, the latest edition of the Electronic Intifada with Nora Barrows-Friedman. All this straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. Welcome to today's Flashpoints. This is Miguel Gavilar Molina, and I'm online right now with one of the long, lifelong activists and advocate from the mission, and someone that's involved with uh, Carnaval for as long as I can remember. And Carnaval is San Francisco, is a project of Cultura y Arte Nativa de las Américas, CANA, and has contributed to the fabric of the Mission District and the San Francisco Bay Area's identity for four decades. It's our pleasure and always uh, a good thing when we have, uh, as we consider him, the mayor of the Mission, but also the cultural ambassador of La Raza to the San Francisco Bay Area, and that is Roberto Hernandez, uh, one of the principal organizers of um, the Carnaval, and countless other uh, political and social activities. Welcome to today's show, Roberto. It's good to have you back. Bueno, 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 bueno. It's mucho gusto. It's, it's my pleasure always to, to be with you and uh, to be able to share el trabajo que hacemos aquí, ¿verdad? Con la comunidad. Absolutely. Claramente. Seguro que sí. And, and there's a lot, lot of things happening, Roberto, you know, in, in not just uh, the Bay Area, San Francisco, but throughout the state and the country. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of social, uh, you know, issues that are being neglected or not being paid attention to. We know that in San Francisco, there's always been battles uh, to get uh, equality and access to health, uh, care, and of course, you know, um, the whole pandemic really brought that out to the light these last couple of years. But you and your organization have been at the forefront at the, of that. And even now, two years later, uh, after the pandemic, uh, Carnaval seems to be on its way back. Yeah, we're really excited uh, to be able to produce the Carnaval San Francisco uh Parade and festival this year, but I w- I want to share with you th- that the Carnaval we never stopped, um, uh, and in the last two years actually we did uh, the Carnaval in a different way. We had uh, um, in the last two years every year we had during the normal time of Carnaval we had a health fair uh, which provided you know um, not only vaccine but testing. But really, uh, all the different services that people who lost their health insurance uh, and weren't able to see a doctor, we had um, uh, many of, of doctors um, and medical institutions who volunteered to check you for your diabetes or you know um, your asthma or any 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 medical condition that you had or new um, conditions that came out. Uh, from COVID, because a lot of people um, that have gotten COVID, it's it's triggered other medical conditions. So in the last two years, having the health pavilion and this health fair uh, made a tremendous uh, impact for over 13,000 
uh, of families that, that came over the last two years. And we also did at the same time uh, during the, the, the weekends uh, of, of Carnaval, we did a job fair because a lot of people lost their jobs. And so we got, you know, from whether it be the airport or a UPS, we, we actually went and got companies uh, to come out to our community to, uh, to hire people on the spot. And that was my whole thing that I just didn't want to have somebody show up and set up a table and give out a flyer of, of a job. No, I said, you, you want to come? In, in our community, set up, bring your laptops, have people fill out their application, do the interview on the spot. And that got over 3,000 people in the last two years hired in not only minimum wage jobs, but we're looking at also getting people into real good salary jobs because that's part of the learning lessons of this pandemic that a lot of our people have been cash workers and minimum wage workers. And here the pandemic hit, and one, they lost their job. They couldn't, you know, shelter in place and work at home like a lot of people and because they don't do those kind of jobs. And they became broke financially. And we have thousands and thousands of people who are broke. And so one of the learning lessons has been during this pandemic is to get people into better paying jobs, number one. Or getting them back, getting educated. So, for example, currently I, I, I have nine uh, different people who are in nursing uh, school. One of them already graduated. She's got five job offers. Minimum starting salary is $80,000 a year, where before she was making minimum wage. You know, so during this pandemic, we got her educated, you know, um, and then the other piece that, that we did was uh, 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 the education fair um, because a lot of our families did not have, for example, internet. They didn't have laptops um, or did not know how to do uh, Zoom. And so we, 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 we put a lot of energy and time into making sure everybody had internet, but not just any internet, good quality, high-speed internet, had the right equipment, and then also making sure that they know, knew and, and taught them how to to learn how to use, you know, Zoom as an example. And so that's the work that we've done in the last two years. And of course, besides the Mission Food Hub, providing a thousand families with groceries. That's what I was going to say. You also provided something really essential, uh, Roberto, and that was food. I know you had boxes and boxes of food. You were, you know, giving out food to families. Uh, groups were coming in to get, you know, food that, uh, you know, you all put together, you know, to to help, you know, the burden because uh, there was a lot of shortages and, and, you know, with lack of money, people weren't getting the proper nutrition and you provided that. That was something, you know, pretty incredible. And, uh, you know, and at this point, here we are, you know, 40 years uh, of the, you know, institution that you've been working with, you know, and uh, the existence of Carnaval and all the offshoot, you know, benefits that come from it. But talk to us a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the Carnaval will be coming up next weekend. But uh, most importantly, I really uh, am interested in, in hearing about the Cultural Arts Healing Center that you've been diligently working, you know, behind the scenes, you know, for several years. But the Carnaval for this year, uh, it's going to be next uh, weekend, I believe. Yeah, so it's going to be Saturday and Sunday, 
is the two-day festival, and that goes on from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And then, of course, the Grand Parade is going to be next Sunday, uh, May 29th, and that starts at 10 o'clock in the morning um, in the Mission District on 24th and Bryant. It goes up 24th Street to Mission Street, and then on Mission Street, it travels all the way to 14th and Mission Street. And, you know, the, the beauty of, of this year's Carnaval is that we're really focusing on love, you know. Um, love, and, yes. And, and, and los colores. Because, you know, there's a war going on, right? And that's hate. You know, there's racist, uh, white supremacists in this country that are killing, you know, uh, people of color, right? Whether you be or Asian or Black or Latino, right? And so we're really promoting love because you know that that's something that you know um is 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 missing in this in this country and the and in the world right now you know and so we really need to go back to just being basic human beings and loving ourselves most important as individuals and loving others and loving everybody around you and and loving unconditionally because at the end of the day we're all human beings and we all have we all have a corazón we all we all have love within ourselves absolutely the best way we can combat hate is with love no absolutely and and uh you know the thing about hate hate is easy but love takes courage and that's one thing that i've seen roberto you do for decades and that's promoting you know amor you know love and and peace and compassion uh some things that are missing you know from the general populace here in this country but uh you know uh this uh la musica music uh dance song is all part of love is all part of the light and is all part of healing and that's something that uh is amazing the way you've been able to gather all these elements together to promote la cultura and and in some circles roberto you're a cultural ambassador you know of maintaining you know the richness of our culture and, and multifaceted community that we have but lead, leading to that uh you know and we're looking forward for that next week and uh but talk to us a little bit about the whole idea and the concept and what you're doing now in finally establishing a, a place, a home for Carnaval within the Mission District, and that is the Cultural Arts Healing Center. You know, I've, I really believe La Cultura Cura. Eso. I know, you, I know you've heard that, you <laughs> know, and, 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 and I've learned it, you know, and, and personally myself as a human being, I needed to heal at one point in my life, you know, and so La Cultura's healed me, and 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 so that's what we're do- we've been doing with Carnaval, and in, and especially in these times, you know, a lot of people are sad, they're depressed, there's a lot of anxiety. The pandemic's not over, not for our people, you know. It's going to take five years minimum for our people to heal. Uh, when you look at uh, people who are broke, not only financially. But spiritually, they've been broken. You know, our people are trabajadores. And and we can't go to work and you got no money. It, it creates anxiety. It affects our mental health. Some people have, you know, talked to me about suicide. They, I've, I've had people who become, you know, uh, dependent on drinking. I've had people who started using drugs. You know, uh, people, families have gotten separated. Uh, there's individuals who have gotten divorced, so, you know. And so one of the things that's really important at this time is that is that I've had this vision, one, of getting a permanent home for Carnaval, because we've been victims of the gentrification 
and been evicted seven different times from commercial spaces that we rented. And so finally, we were able to get where the old cell space was at. Remember cell space? You know, yeah. And so, you know, they got evicted and we were actually, that was one of the spaces that we used to be at. And, um, and of course, with the, dance, the Danzantes and Loco Bloco and, and, and many other arts groups that that was a communal space. So the, the vision that, that I've had is to rebuild the cell space at that location. As you know, there was a developer that literally wiped out two thirds of of the businesses and the residents by buying each property there. He wanted the whole block and and thank God one third of the block, all the Raza that own property there refused to sell to him. But he got one third, uh, two thirds of the block, you know? And so we fought the evictions, we lost. He got, he went to the planning department and he got, uh, we lost there by four to three votes and he got his entitlement, but we appealed it to the board of supervisors. And and we had the votes on the board, and so we we, we negotiated with him, and and we landed up getting a piece of land. Um, and with that land is the the, uh, the 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 building of the cultural arts healing center. And above us, there's 139 affordable housing units that are being constructed. Uh, and the center basically is going to be different in terms of not just the home for Carnival. But it'll be a place that magically when you and in working with uh, this architect for Mexico and a few others, we're creating a space. When you go in there, it's going to transform you like you're in Latin America with the colors and just the aesthetics. Every element of the space is going to make you just feel, you know, like you're in a whole nother onda, another zone. And. The beauty of it is, is that we're going to have a recording studio so all these young kids who are out in the street can come in and learn how to record and make music, uh, adults, seniors. Uh, and then we're going to have a art uh, maker space where you're going to learn about, you know, from clay to how to make costumes. And then we're going to have another room space where you're going to it's going to be for dance for yoga, for meditation, and then we're going to have another space for, for musicians, and then we're going to have a performing space. So, But the, the vision and the program, the way it's being designed, is specifically to reach inside your mind, your heart, your soul, your spirit, and your body, and connect it all so that you can heal, whether it be with a, a yoga and then a dance class. Because movement, right? When you do movement, you 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 connect you, and, and your mind, your heart, your spirit, and it makes you smile and it makes you happy. No, you ab- absolutely, Roberto. And, and uh, you know, just the, just the cultura. You know, for those that that don't get uh, you know understand Spanish, uh, cultura cura means culture cures. And, and it's so right there, you know. It is so true, especially for uh, the la raza, the, the Latino indigenous communities. And uh, providing a space is so necessary. And, and you know, Roberto, in some ways, you know, uh, after 500 years, you know, of, uh, you know, colonialism, you know, throughout the Americas, you know, some people say, well, they've taken everything. They took our land. They took everything from us. Well, yeah, they took the lands, but they did not take our music. 
They didn't take our songs, and they didn't take our dance. And those three things are so culturally rich, but they're also part of what is the light, the light that brings love, the light that creates peace and harmony and balance, and the light that illuminates and, and, and starves the darkness. And there's a lot of darkness in this country right now. But one thing that we know, Roberto, and that's that in San Francisco, in the mission, the sun always shines. And this will be an area where the sun is always going to be the beacon of hope and, and, and uh, bringing enrichment to the community. But, but one of the things, again, uh, a, a lot is happening, a lot is moving, and uh, how can people help, uh, you know, for those that want to help, you know, be part of this, what can they do, Roberto? Well, first of all, you know, it takes money to, to build centers. And, and so even though we got the land, you know, um, for free, you know, we're having to raise $3.8 million to actually, you know, build the, 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 the center. And so we got a capital campaign so people can donate to the, you know, to the capital campaign. Um, they can uh, go to, you know, they can call us at 415-206-0577 um, and, we can, you know, take people through the steps of, of, of all the different options of how they can donate, you know, to support the work that we're doing, you know, which really, really important, you know. Absolutely. And Cultura in Arte Nativa de las Americas, Cana, is a 501 uh, nonprofit organization. So uh, this is uh, uh, an effort, Roberto, and, and you're, uh, you know, you're at the forefront of this. And uh, we really, uh, if there's anything that we can do to, to help you, to promote, you know, we do have your back. And someone just asked me, whispered in my ear, uh, <laughs> for this year's Carnaval, uh, what is the, uh, what are some of the featured uh, performers and music that's going to be happening so we're we're gonna be uh you i know you know leo rosales uh, oh, yeah. from uh you know who's who is or they're one of the remaining uh, living legends of, of malo he's putting together uh, uh montuno a special a uh, band of of all the artists that have performed with you know malo sapo um santana and so this they, he's got an all-star band that's going to be performing and then Los Racas, you know, which is a a young, you know, uh, East Bay band, you know, that's just amazing. And then, you know, we have, you know, from, from mariachis to, you know, a group samba, salsa, to African, you know, beats. So it's, it, once again, it's, you know, um, the beauty of Carnaval is that we have all, every kind of raza, you know, whether it be Africano or Afro-Latino or, you know, um, Filipino, Latino, Filipino, Chinito, Latino, Pablo Wong is going to be performed. I mean, it's it, it's just we we this year we really curated all the stages to make sure that all of the colores, um, the amor uh, that exists, are represented in in the, in the different stages at the two day festival, and of course in the parade. 
Uh, that's going to be incredible, something that we're all looking forward to. And, and uh, your efforts to bring the four directions and the four colors into the mission uh, is going to be a beacon that radiates throughout the Bay Area and Northern California and hopefully the rest of the country as an example of what happens when when people come together, all groups, all races, uh, the, the richness and diversity that groups bring is really going to be highlighted, uh, I believe, this year at the Carnaval. And a lot of that Roberto, is due to your vision and your relentless uh, pursuit to make sure that uh, la cultura does not disappear uh, from San Francisco or, for that matter, uh, from California and the rest of the country. Uh, uh, that said, is there any last closing words you'd like to have for our listeners? Uh, and again, I've been speaking to Roberto Hernandez, uh, the CEO, the director executive of Cana, that is the cultural uh, San Francisco Cultural uh, uh, Arts Center and so forth. Uh, anything you'd like to say, Car uh, Carnal? Yeah, you know, uh, get involved, you know, uh, volunteer. Um, and so call us at 415-206-0577. Become part of the movement because that's what it is, is that, be, you know, we're organizing people and be part of that, the organizing effort, you know, to not only preserve our culture, but most importantly, when you get involved, man, you know, it feeds your heart and your soul and your spirit. So uh, call us 415-206-0577. And uh, again, uh, for listeners, and uh, I, I hope, Roberto, you also really advocate uh, the need for people to get out and vote. Uh, this coming June, the primaries, and of course, the uh, midterm elections in November. Yeah, we're doing voter reg. Um, uh, over the weekend, um, also not only to get people to vote, but get people registered to vote because it's important. And then also is the citizenship drive because there's a lot of you know our hand that, that qualify to become citizens, but they don't, you know. And so now I think people really realize that it's important, you know, to exercise your right to become a citizen and to register to vote, and most important, to get out and vote. Uh, that's uh, again the voice of Roberto Hernandez. He's the uh, cultural ambassador, aka the uh, mayor of the Mission, and hopefully someday of San Francisco, and maybe uh, someday uh, at a bigger, uh, the bigger place in the state of California. Thank you so much, Roberto, for your commitment and for your decades of advocacy and activism promoting the advancement of Latino. Uh, indigenous uh, cultura throughout uh, San Francisco, the state, and the country. Thank you so much, Roberto, for being with us. Thank you for having me on. You have a blessed day. Oh, you too. Ajo. This is Miguel Gavilan Molina for Flashpoints. Up next on Flashpoints, we're proud to present another episode of the Electronic Intifada podcast with host Nora Barrows Friedman. The shift is incredible. Um, it shows that what PSD's actions um, have been about are not limited to just people who come to our events and people who are very actively part of our community. So this is sort of like a referendum on the way Harvard students are thinking about the issue in general. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. 
Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. On April 29th, the Harvard Crimson's editorial board published a statement in support of boycott, divestment, and sanctions, and a free Palestine, in which they say that they now, quote, regret and reject their previous position that sidelined the Palestinian-led BDS campaign. Quote, it is our categorical imperative to side with and empower the vulnerable and oppressed. We can't nuance away Palestinians' violent reality, nor can we let our desire for a perfect imaginary tool undermine a living, breathing movement of such great promise. They continue, two decades ago, we wrote that divestment was a blunt tool that affected all citizens of the target nation equally and should be used sparingly. Yet the tactics embodied by BDS have a historical track record. They helped, with, they helped win the liberation of Black South Africans from apartheid and have the potential to do the same for Palestinians today. The board also asserted that, quote, support for Palestinian liberation is not anti-Semitic, noting the, quote, wake of accusations suggesting otherwise. And as if on cue, those exact accusations poured in from Israel's defenders of apartheid, from former Harvard president and erstwhile Democratic Party official Lawrence Summers, to Israeli newspapers, to U.S. Senator Ted Cruz and the Anti-Defamation League. However, the former president of the Crimson, Daniel Swanson, remarked that it took tremendous courage for the paper to publish the statement. He said, quote, there's more debate in the Harvard Crimson editorial and room for both the main editorial and dissent than there is in the New York Times editorial page. So that's a very good sign. Joining us to talk about the student-led movement that helped lead the Crimson to this point and the backlash by Israel lobby groups and U.S. politicians are two members of the Harvard-Palestine Solidarity Committee, Nadine Bahur and Shrada Joshi. And also joining us is Amaya Gelman. She's an activist, researcher, and a teacher at NYU who just wrote a crucial analysis on the dangerous role that the ADL and its CEO, Jonathan Greenblatt, play in emboldening the right wing's war against anti-racist activists. Amaya is also working on a book about the ADL. Thank you all for being with us today on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you. So uh, Nadine and Shraddha, let's start with having you lay out your reaction to the Harvard Crimson taking this bold stance in support of Palestinian rights and admitting that they got it wrong in the past. Uh, the editorial board took note of the Palestine Solidarity Committee's campus organizing, and they say, quote, in at least one regard, PSC's spirited activism has proven successful. It has forced our campus and our editorial board to once again wrestle with what, with what both Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have called Israel's crimes against humanity in the region. Nadine, you're a senior. Um, can you talk about the steady direct actions you've been a part of at Harvard and the significance of the Crimson recognizing how student organizing led to their statement? Thank you for having us, Nuda. Um, for the past four years, ever, ever since I started my time at Harvard, I've been very involved with the Palestine Solidarity Committee. Um, and as an international student from Palestine, specifically the West Bank, um, I really wanted to make sure that the lived experiences of Palestinians and that my identity is sort of portrayed during my experience at Harvard. And I, I have the very unique perspective of sharing how I grew up and where I grew up with a population that might not even know where Palestine is. Um, and the Palestine Solidarity Committee has always been sort of a home for that kind of activism. Um, ever since my first year, we were able to organize our annual Israeli Apartheid Week, which is sort of what spurred um, 
the editorial this year. But alongside that, we also host a variety of speakers. We host a Palestine 101 event. Um, we organize rallies in support of our Divest campaign. Uh, we organize boycotts with for uh, different products that the university supplies that support Israeli apartheid, like Sabra Hummus on in our dining halls. Um, but we also want to highlight the culture that comes with Palestine. That's also very often a part of what is being stolen um, and what is what is a part of the Israeli apartheid. But uh, we host a lot of Dabke events, which is traditional Palestinian dance. Uh, we try to do an embroidery workshop. Um, we try to highlight Palestinian food. And I think throughout my four years, half of it was online for sure, but the Palestine Solidarity Committee's uh, events continued to sort of be a main uh, part of my experience and something that we really wanted to make sure is portrayed on campus. Um, but of course, with every year, we try to highlight something different. There's always something happening. The news never leaves us looking for information or for anything to highlight. Um, and every year we sort of try to highlight a different thing through our Israeli apartheid week. And I think during my first year, there was a big emphasis on solidarity movements during online year um, with COVID. There was a lot to emphasize on in terms of the pandemic, but also in terms of the violence that was taking place in May 2021 um, and throughout the summer. Um, and this year, we really wanted to focus on BDS, on divestment. We wanted to uh, put all our efforts into our divestment campaign which we titled Harvard Out of Occupied Palestine. Um, and we really organized throughout the year for it. And IAW was sort of the icing on the cake for that um, in terms of really bringing speakers that highlight the apartheid um, that is on the ground, but also how Harvard is complicit in it. Um, and that really put the Crimson's editorial into perspective when it came out just a week after um, IAW, because we had been organizing for, for so long, we had been highlighting BDS for so long. And I think as a Palestinian student, I often felt that our voices were really marginalized, really just ignored by the Crimson. And in many times the Crimson was um, sort of uh, one of the forces that was working against PSC and was one of the forces that didn't allow us to publish anonymously, uh, would cover our uh, events in a very quote unquote neutral manner. Um, and we really sort of get slapped with like the anti-Semitic uh, label very quickly just for hosting certain speakers. Um, so I was very shocked when I saw the Crimson editorial that morning. Um, and I, I couldn't believe that the same body that um, only two years ago had said that the BDS movement is a blunt tool and something that um, they are not willing to back um, by a long shot in two years, saw PSC's activities, saw the students, heard the students' voices on campus and decided to take a stance. Um, and the backlash that they're facing now is nothing new to PSC. I think what's interesting is I have been focusing so much on like my shock that the editorial came out and how excited I am about it. And I've really sidelined a lot of the backlash similar to a lot of PSC organizers, I think. Um, but then when you open any of the news or you talk to anyone in the Crimson right now, they're like, but the backlash and it's so much and how do you deal with that? And for some reason, I feel like I've only now started to notice how much we've normalized that. We, we sort of know what we're working towards and we're gonna keep putting our efforts into producing uh, more events and into sort of highlighting our mission rather than putting our efforts into fighting any of the backlash that's coming out um, and sort of the repeated accusations of X, Y, and Z of what we're doing. Um, but it, it really does highlight to the rest of the Harvard community sort of how it, what it feels like and how it is to organize for Palestine and that backlash is definitely something that needs to be kept in mind. Thanks, Nadine. Um, Shada, how important is it um, that a campus newspaper like the Crimson takes a stand in support of BDS? And what does this signal in terms of 
changing the paradigm on college campuses, um, especially high profile ones like Harvard, which as we know, and, and as Nadine pointed out, has relationships with Israeli institutions. Yeah, for sure. I think just to echo Nadine, um, after IAW was over this week, we were really proud about everything that had gone down, but I don't think anyone really expected that it would be recognized in such a way, especially because just after IAW, the direct um, article that was written by the Crimson was something along the lines of Israeli apartheid week draws backlash. And that was sort of the headline. And that was what was on the front page of the Crimson. And so a week later for this editorial to come out was really shocking and in all pleasant ways really surprising for us because um, we hadn't expected such an endorsement just given the years of precedent. You can look at a 2000 article, a year 2000 article that essentially denies apartheid and then you look at 2000, uh, 2020 which says that you know maybe human rights violations are happening, maybe there are problems that are happening but it would still be unfair to divest and then you look at 2022 and they're really calling out these issues of apartheid, settler colonialism, things that we've been calling on and things that PSC members have been calling on for decades. And so I think that the shift is incredible. Um, it shows that what PSC's actions um, have been about are not limited to just people who come to our events and people who are very actively part of our community. But rather, um, I think for a lot of us, this is sort of like a referendum on the way Harvard students are thinking about the issue in general. And so I think for me personally, as someone who's not Palestinian, who has who's part of a lot of communities that aren't really engaged with the cause, to see these conversations sort of happening outside of our spaces, outside of organizing spaces, is a validation. And I think that the Crimson Editorial has brought those conversations into the mainstream. And so then looking at that, looking at Harvard in relationship to other universities, um, obviously the fact that the Crimson was the one that endorsed this has just, the big name of the Crimson has drawn so much attention from outside of Harvard, um, whether that's good attention from people like Mohammed Al-Kurd, Noura Arafat, people who are really you know engaged in these causes and are sort of at the front line of um, this type of advocacy. And then obviously the backlash from Zionist media, from um, politicians and stuff. But I think the fact that, the Crimson has given this endorsement shows that something big is happening and that it's not just limited to PSC, to PSC at Harvard, but maybe more just, you know, students in general, campus life, um, campus organizers in general across the country who are bringing attention to these issues and gaining traction. Um, and I think it's a really a testament to the fact that young people are changing the way they think about Palestine. And um, I hope that, you know, the Crimson editorial will inspire other universities to sort of continue their dialogue about what's going on in Palestine and how that can be addressed on campus. And, you know, specifically to Harvard, I hope that this can be the starting point for us to reevaluate our relationship with occupation and for the administration to sort of take the pressure from students and um, look at what can be done in response. Thanks so much. Um, let's talk a little bit about the backlash and, and then I wanna bring Maya into the conversation as well. Um, Nadine, Tell us about the level of vilification um, of the Harvard Crimson statement, what kind of backlash um, the editorial board and PSC has been facing and, and what that looks like. So the backlash has been sort of, at least from my perspective, very similar to a lot of the things that we've seen. I think we now live in a world where everything is happening on Instagram, on Twitter, on podcasts, but so much of it is always at your fingertips at any hour of the day. Um, and I think, there's always been a lot of backlash that has happened towards PSC social media and towards PSC as an institution. Um, but what is always so much more disheartening to see is the backlash that students face personally. Um, and I think as, as much as I don't like to say this, but I've gotten more used to it, um, or at least I see it coming, like you said, it's like as if it comes on cue and it, 
um, you know that it's coming and you accept the fact that you have to deal with it. Um, and as much as this shouldn't be the case, um, I think PSC members have been doing this for four years and it's become a little bit more um, expected. But I think the backlash that the Crimson editorial members and the Crimson as a whole, um, with all its members and its president is facing, has been absolutely horrendous. Um, for, for beginners, the, the students didn't think that you, they, you write under the Crimson Editorial Board's name because this is an anonymous group of sort of students that can do it and um, they get to publish under the editorial's name, but that security that you get that when you publish about anything else under the editorial's name immediately goes away with Palestine. Um, I remember the second day or the third day after the editorial came out, there was this Instagram page of someone just taking screenshots of everyone's personal accounts, everyone's social media and exposing them. and. Um, saying truly horrific things about them and so many of these people were not people were not even involved in that editorial they're just a part of the crimson which is a huge organization and it's the largest newspaper newspaper um in college campuses um and i think that vilification and that personal targeting um is just another example of how zionists of how any backlash that organizing for palestine faces is not usually coming for the ideology as much as it's coming for the people for making you for wanting to push you out of this doing this work and it's absolutely scary and i think it doesn't matter even as someone who expects it every time i publish something under my name i see some of the comments i see some of the articles that are written and i'm like do i really want to keep doing this is this going to be like my whole life um, and I think it's really hard to come to terms with that when you're still finding your identity and when you're still finding your footing in college. Uh, we might be 20 plus years, years old, but I think it's still really hard to figure out where you, how you want to sort of figure out your relationship with politics and, and sort of with being publicly like a, a facing figure. Um, I think that's, that's one part of it. I think the other part of it, especially for PSC members who want to voice their opinion, who want to stand in support of the Crimson and who want to like, publish more op-eds in the Crimson um, speaking against the backlash are just unable to do so because they can't have their name out there because they either want to go back home over the summer or they are on a student visa in the US and can't risk that because they want to continue their education. Um, and I think that really always just makes you look at everything from a bird's eye perspective and realize the, the privilege that Zionists have in terms of speaking loudly and proudly and the power that those voices have, whereas the oppressed voices that do want to speak up in solidarity of that um, of Palestinians and, and in solidarity with the Crimson are just unable to do so. Um, and I think that's sort of from a, from a bigger perspective on Harvard's campus in specific and in terms of the backlash that um, students are facing, it's it's always, I think specifically this year, uh, been so much more clear how institutionally backed this uh, this backlash is from, from Harvard, from prominent, loud and, and, and very powerful voices on campus uh, and how we're at the end of the day, a student organization um, and we're just a group of students that are passionate about one thing and wanna call for uh, sort of the liberation of Palestine and we're faced by, uh, by people on Harvard's payroll that are telling us that what you're doing is, is problematic and you're alienating students and you are, are, are calling for X, Y, and Z um, and, and things that are just not even worth repeating on a, on a space like this. Um, I think it really puts into perspective how the power imbalance that exists between Palestinian student organizers um, and everyone else in the Harvard sphere, which echoes, I think, most of the Harvard, most of the college campuses in the US is absolutely, um, very challenging to deal with and very imbalanced. Um, and I think that that backlash will continue to come um, even now as we respond to, the, to, to the, the editorial and as we try to share more of our perspective. Um, but I think one thing that we always talk about in PSC is that it doesn't matter how much of this backlash comes, it doesn't matter how many editorials are written and how many um, 
Instagram accounts and comments and whatever you want comes towards PSC. Um, I think we've we've managed to figure out that the, the, the answer to all of this is just to channel it into speaking louder, into organizing more events, into holding IAW again, uh, and into writing more. Um, and that's the, the most constructive way to do it and the way that we'll continue doing it. Thanks, Nadine. Um, Amaya, you've been tracking the kinds of backlash uh, Nadine and Sharada uh, were just talking about by, by Israel lobby groups and the Israeli government itself. And one particular lobby group um, working tirelessly to denounce student activism in support of Palestinian rights has been the ADL, a right-wing lobby organization masquerading as a civil rights group. Um, its CEO, Jonathan Greenblatt, has been on a tirade recently trying to smear anti-Zionist activists, anti-racist organizers as racists. And you know, as you've pointed out uh, over the, the, you know, the last several years, this is not a new tactic, obviously, but his recent actions are becoming increasingly dangerous, um, as you point out in your latest post on Medium. Um, he said of the Crimson editorial that it is outrageous to equate Zionism with white supremacy and that the editors show no understanding of the region's past or present. You're writing a book on the ADL. Um, what are your initial thoughts on that group's smear campaign against the Crimson editors and against um, students uh, like Nadine and Shraddha? Um, well, the day before, I think the day before the Crimson editorial on May 1st, um, the CEO of the ADL, Jonathan Greenblatt, um, conducted a, a national meeting, sort of a pre-hyped national meeting, where he announced that he was going after student groups, including Students for Justice in Palestine, um, and also a few other organizations, um, Jewish Voice for Peace and CARE, and also Drop the ADL, which is a coalition of anti-racist organizations. Um, and that he that he was he was announcing that the ADL was essentially going to war um, <clears throat> with organizations that that uh, challenged Zionism and that he was sort of walking away, the ADL was walking away um, from the from previous claims that it was allied with anti-racist movements. In fact, um, uh, one or two years ago, the ADL um, joined in a, a letter that had been organized where several hundred Jewish organizations signed on to, um, to identify Black Lives Matter as a new civil rights movement, which was kind of a walk back of a previous um, round of attacks on Black Lives Matter for making, um, making common cause and identifying solidarity um, with Palestinians against racist policing. So that there had been a sort of um, an effort by the ADL, and not just not just the ADL, but but major Zionist institutions um, more generally, to try and um, to try and make some uh, common cause with anti-racist movement groups, as Black Lives Matter and anti-policing protests became the sort of core of um, of civil rights politics in the U.S. And as they increasingly um, helped people understand the connections between racism in the US and Israeli racism, Israeli apartheid and, um, and Palestinian like discussions of what, what, the, what was happening and how it was related. Um, and that all went away, that on May 1st, it was gone. That was, the, the mask was off. Um, Jonathan Greenblatt announced very specifically that he was, um, that he was doing that, that he was characterizing anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism without exception. Um, and 
um, that he named these three primary organizations and dropped the ADL as a coalition. And he did he did it in language that's Cold War language. It's, it was really, I mean, it was kind of funny, but not funny. <laughs> um, he called he called uh, the idea that anti-Zionism was a challenge to state violence, uh, Soviet disinformation, um, really echoing the words of the Christian right as it challenges um, critical race theory, supposed critical race theory in education, um, calling critical race theory and teaching about race a Marxist plot and socialist plot. Um, so that was the day before the Crimson editorial. And so it was not a surprise when, when his next move, when the ADL's next move was to smear the Crimson um, and to call the editorial sort of childish. And I can't remember what he said exactly. Um, he called it, he said it was like wrong and didn't understand. And that's been the ADL's approach um, generally to when, uh, when anti-racist statements come out when um, when uh, organizations or um, or movement groups come out to say like look we have to take a stand on BDS or on Palestinian liberation, not necessarily specifically to Palestinians, but because we have to oppose racism and colonialism and state violence, the ADL's response is sit down, children. You don't know what you're talking about, or you're evil and you're anti-Semites. But the the effect is the same. Um, it's not new, the ADL has been attacking the left for a long time and, and, and it's been attacking um, civil rights civil rights groups for a long time, even as it purports to be a civil rights organization. But the thing that's really interesting about this moment and that I think um, that we're seeing in the, in the way that the, um, that the Crimson's editorial like shows a shift is that the whole conversation about, about race and rights in the US has changed because of Black Lives Matter and the sort of popularization of ideas like structural racism and colonialism. Like um, the ADL has had to, and again, also Zionist organizations more broadly, and especially those who are trying to target millennials um, have turned to this language about, um, you know, Jews are indigenous to Palestine um, and Jews are not white and Jews must be included in, um, in your, if you are anti-racist and you're saying that Jews are white, you're a racist and this doesn't make sense. So it's trying to sort of um, insert Zionism into the new anti-racist politics and it fails on its face. And so then it, I think what that has done is it has made space for, uh, for people who didn't previously understand why BDS was important or why the ADL was wrong to, to, to question them. So I think the ADL is in a terrible position right now, um, trying to enter into that civil rights space at the same time as it's also, as Zionism is becoming more and more um, a pet of white supremacists, it's just not working. So I think this, the, the backlash um, was not a surprise, but also I think the PSC approach that we're hearing from Sharda and Nadine is absolutely like, it makes total sense, like just keep going because the ADL's messaging is just, it's falling flatter and flatter and they're losing more and more of their audience. You also write in your piece that it's it's not only wrong and you know on its face as you say, but um, but that it's also seriously dangerous. Um, that the ADL's um, 
you know, give giving a pass to right wing, you know, racist anti-Palestinian organizations um, will have uh, really, really pernicious, dangerous effects. Can you talk a little bit about that and and um, and, you know, how you see the ADL's war on anti-racist now playing out? Um, yes, that the ADL has a long history as um, an anti-communist and a Cold War organization. And that sounds a little dated and irrelevant, maybe. But the the nature of US politics right now and the way that the that white nationalism is defining itself is actually in terms of the Cold War. It's it's weird, but it's true. There's so the Cold War frame of mind is like the the United States and the West against the scary East, right? There, it's full of it, anti-communism tra translates very well into Islamophobia because there's the idea of the United States is it's capitalist and it's there's a whiteness to it, right? And a Christianity um, and it's pitted against this sort of foreign scary um, not Christian, not capitalist East. Um, and that's the, the core of white nationalism. And even though the ADL in, its, in, in his speech, Greenblatt compared um, anti-Zionism to QAnon, right? So he was, trying to, he was trying to make out that it's racist. He was trying to play into a trope, but in fact, his base is probably closer to QAnon <laughs> Than, than anything. Um, we know that Christian Zionists have a, have a very close overlap with QAnon. We know that the ADL is busily um, uh, fighting, leading the fight against ethnic studies in California um, and spreading that fight elsewhere across the country. Um, that fight, the people who are opposing ethnic studies in California are opposing it on the grounds that it's critical race theory and Marxist, right? So these are, the, the idea of calling anti-racism Soviet disinformation or calling anti-Zionism Marxist is a way of, of signaling that the ADL is, is um, sort of giving permission or, or dog whistling to white nationalist organizations that it's okay and desirable to target anti-racist movement groups. And we know that white nationalists are armed we know that not just white nationalists, but um, but also that um, Zionist nationalists and historically the Jewish Defense League are armed. That they're not interested in U.S. law because they they view themselves as accountable to a higher authority. Right? This is dangerous. They're inviting and and in in some ways inciting violence. Now I want to be really careful about what I'm saying. I'm not saying that Greenblatt said go out and harm somebody, but historically the organizations that the ADL has demonized have then become the targets of, of people who have done bombings and murders. So yeah, I'm, I, I'm legitimately terrified and I open my mailbox slowly. I'm not kidding, like I, it's incredibly dangerous. Thanks for that. Um, we only have a few minutes left. Uh, Nadine and Shraddha, how does this, level of outright targeting of anti-Zionist, anti-racist organizers on campuses um, from Harvard to Berkeley affect students and, and how can, can they and, and you as members of PSC be empowered to fight back? What's your next steps here? 
so I think like one of the conversations we've been having a lot is when we say fighting back, like who is our audience? Like who's the audience of our activism? Who do we direct our energy and our efforts towards? And I think one thing that we've sort of come to realize is that we're not necessarily trying to respond to the alumni who are gonna send letters to the Crimson saying things that are saying things that are racist, saying things that are sort of denying Palestinian suffering that are just so oblivious to what's going on on the ground. Because in the end, we really do want to capitalize on this movement, which is that students are having these conversations and that students are starting to listen and realize that there is a connection between Black Lives Matter and between what's going on in Palestine and that we as Harvard students, um, as a lot of us as Americans are directly complicit in this type of oppression. And so I think trying to focus on solidarity building and to have that at the student level is something that we can do a lot more tangibly and something that we can do a lot more effectively because as we talked about the backlash and the people that we're up against are in places of power considerable power more than us. And so while we can, you know, look at the Crimson op-eds or look at people who have been tweeting about us in the end, I think that it's a lot better and just a lot more effective for us to put our efforts into what's going on on the ground. And I think something that's almost heartening is the fact that so last year in um, wake of everything that happened in May 2021, there was a Harvard Stands with Israel petition. But if you look at the majority of the names, a lot of them were alumni and more than there are definitely a lot more alumni than Harvard students. And so while obviously that means that there are people in positions of power who have that viewpoint, it also means that younger people aren't espousing those viewpoints and that people who are vocal about you know, opposing the Crimson editorial, a lot of them are people who graduated from Harvard 20, 30 years ago and are really not connected to the reality of student activism and to what's going on on campus now. And so while we will always be getting hatred and getting, you know, these sorts of, sorts of slander and, and a lot of pushback from people who are extremely Zionist and just don't hold the even the space to sort of have this conversation and have this dialogue, I think we should be dedicating our attention towards the majority who might be unengaged or might be sort of on the fence, say that things are complicated and to show them that, you know, it's not complicated. Here's what Palestinians are saying. Here's the evidence. Here's what human rights organizations are saying. And I think having that standpoint has been a lot more effective. And that's probably what's led to this moment, this just watershed moment of um, the Crimson editorial. And um, that's also why it's just the beginning and why we want to continue bringing this conversation to students um, rather than, you know, worrying too much about what others are saying from positions of power. Nadine, did you want to add to that? I completely agree with all of this. I think the, the, the emphasis that I would add is on the point of the students, the current population at Harvard and their current viewpoints. I think it, it's even much faster turnover than, than you might imagine. I think during my four years here, the conversations I used to have with people my first year are nowhere near the conversations I'm having now three and a half years later. Um, and, I, and I think that speed at which students are uh, willing to listen to others, at the speed at which students are willing to act and show that BDS could work. I think there, there's this trip that's funded by the Harvard Hillel uh, over spring break to Israel. It's like 10 days of a, free, of a free trip that's open to anyone and everyone in the Harvard population. And we started a boycott campaign this year. Um, and we also launched a boycott campaign two years ago when uh, we were in person. And that year, no one sort of would talk to us. No one would sit with us at the table to like listen to our perspective and no one boycotted. And this year, five students boycotted. And they showed you that BDS has the potential to work. Five out of 100 might not be a lot, but five is way more than zero. Um, and I think it's really important to put into perspective the students that are listening to other activists on campus and the students that are willing to listen to student experiences and lived experiences of Palestinians and to really center those Palestinian voices. Um, I think the whole argument that you need to go see this injustice in order to believe it, in order to confirm that everything you're reading about in the news is real and then you're gonna take a stance um, is very quickly losing its footing and as people are 
very quickly starting to listen to Palestinian students. And I think we need to also center the fact that Harvard needs to invite more Palestinian professors, more Palestinian scholars, accept, accept people into their community that are willing to share that perspective. Um, and they've done a, a decent job so far, given that I'm here, I think I, I have to say that, uh, but I think there's a lot of room for a lot of teaching to be given from a different perspective rather than only accepting students because student activism is very important and very critical. Uh, but like we were saying, it's always met with institutional backed uh, opposition and that shift needs to happen very quickly. And I think one more thing I'd add is that since we are very much tied to the BDS campaign, everything that we do comes from a precedent. And, you know, in the 1980s, 1990s, there was a lot of activism around apartheid South Africa, and that was met with incredible institutional backlash. But then there was also faculty support and there's also a rising base of student support. And so I think if we can use that to sort of guide our activism now, which is what we do always strive to do. Um, I feel like we are moving in a positive direction because we've gotten a lot of student support. Um, there are faculty who are really excited about this editorial and who are willing to stand with us. And I just can't imagine how this will just kind of keep increasing throughout the years. Thank you, Shraddha and Nadine and Amaya. Thank you so much, Amaya Gelman. You are a, uh, uh, yeah, you, you finished your PhD and you're actually teaching now at NYU and you have a forthcoming book on all of this research that you've been engaging in for the last few years. Um, and uh, Nadine Bahur and Shraddha Joshi from Harvard's Palestine Solidarity Committee. Thank you all for, for everything you do. Are there any um, social medias that you'd want? We have the dropthadl.org website, but um, for, for if people want to get in touch or support Harvard PSC, where can they go? In the Instagram world, at Harvard PSC is the easiest way, and that's our um, username for all social media as well. Wonderful. Thank you all so much for being with us today on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks, Nara. Thank you. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net. That wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.